This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 8th, 2019. People often find reasons to criticize politicians that they don't like, but how much is that criticism based on their beliefs? And how much is it casting around for sticks to beat them with? Would they condemn the same behavior if it came from their own side? Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up on today's podcast. You know, I appreciate you bringing this to my attention. And, and I think that there are other issues where conservatives can join forces. Wait, wait, with, wait, with what, wait, what? Scott Pruitt in charge of the EPA, deleting hundreds of references to climate change you hadn't noticed? Uh, <laughs> as an editor, there are a number of, of, of t- types of issues, but we've, I've done plenty other stories uh, on government transparency. That's coming up in a few minutes, but first I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who makes that contribution. In case you don't know, Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them and make a donation, there's details on the website and at the end of this show. Last month, a mob of more than 70 men, armed with baseball bats, knives and rocks, launched a series of vigilante attacks around the towns of Clichy-sous-Bois and Bobigny, about an hour east of Paris. French police arrested at least 20 of them. The mob launched attacks against Roma, also known as gypsies, living in the area, and the trigger for the violence was a series of rumours spread online, along with photos or videos of the incident, that the Roma had kidnapped a young French girl using a white van, intending to sell her into sex slavery. Or perhaps it was a red van, or maybe yellow, and maybe it was a boy that was kidnapped or maybe several children, and the intention was maybe to harvest their organs. Sometimes Roma are the culprits, sometimes Bulgarians, sometimes other types of outsiders. The wandering details should tell you the same as it should have told the members of the mob. All the rumours were nonsense. French police confirmed that they had no reports of any abductions and no reason to think that any of the rumours were true. In addition, reverse image searches of the supposed photographic evidence showed that it was from unrelated incidents, often years old, taken in distant locations and showing incidents that are completely different to what the accompanying text claims. French police were so frustrated with the persistence of these rumours that they issued a formal notice that they are false and instructed people to stop sharing them. One spokesman said of the people who believed and acted on the rumours that a psychosis is starting to set in. That might sound strong, but the background to this is truly bizarre. Various versions of the story have been going around for at least a decade. 
It has shown up in places as far apart as Belgium, Germany, Sweden and Australia. There have been reports of, for example, parents being afraid to allow their children to play outside in areas of Australia where the rumour was circulating. That's understandable, but it's a whole lot different to gangs of dozens of men with improvised weapons setting out to attack an innocent group of people. It's tempting to wonder who's the culprit, who put together the fake photos and video with a text that was clearly untrue. That might be an interesting question, but I think it's not the most interesting one. These stories could never gain traction if they didn't appeal to the fears that already run deep in people. Sure, some people believe these stories because they're a bit naive, and they were told it maybe by someone else who swallowed it themselves. Maybe they embellished it along the way, but given that the details wander quite a bit, but still retain the same basic elements, I think that it's unlikely that anyone consciously manufactured the entire story from scratch. I think that it's a very dangerous game of electronic Chinese whispers. I think that the interesting question here is, why do these stories crop up? Why do people believe them when they do? I think it's a sign of a society under stress. Pogroms and riots against Jews in Tsarist Russia were closely associated with bad harvests. The authorities even saw it as a good thing, let the masses blow off some steam. France, in case you haven't heard, has had months of violent anti-government protests every weekend. That sounds like a society under stress to me, and I don't think that they're on their own. Let's not forget that Britain is tearing itself to shreds over Brexit, and American politics isn't exactly covered in glory at the moment either, and everyone agrees it has a lot to do with fake news, even if they can't agree which bits are fake. I don't know exactly what the moral of the story is, but I think that a collapse in the faith we have in authorities, in police, in media, in politicians, a collapse in the faith we have in them might be justified, but it's still a dangerous thing. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Rob Louie. Rob is the Vice President for Communications at the Heritage Foundation, and he's also a founding editor of The Daily Signal. Rob, you have a huge output in terms of columns and writings that go back for years and years on the Heritage Foundation website, also on The Daily Signal and loads of other websites. And most of them are along the lines, particularly the older ones, are along the lines of holding power to account. Why do you do that? Well, thank you for having me on the program. I think it's very important uh, for, for those of us in, in journalism uh, to, uh, to do our job, and that is uh, oftentimes to, to hold those people who, who hold power accountable, uh, not only to the promises they've made uh, to the people whom, who have elected them, but also uh, to those commitments that we hold dear in this country. And I, I think that uh, oftentimes we find in Washington that sometimes the, the rhetoric that you hear back home doesn't match up with the actions that take place 
uh, in an institution like Congress. And you look at so mm-hmm. many uh, policy issues that require action and the frustration the American people have and the reason that they hold Congress in such low regard, I think, is their inability to get things done and, uh, and, and, and follow through on those commitments that they've made. I mentioned, um, obviously, you were at the Heritage Foundation. You're also associated with the Daily Signal. I think also you wrote for Town Hall. All of those are very much right-leaning publications and, and organizations. And what I fear on this, so first of all, I completely agree with you how important it is to hold power to account. But what I fear is that sometimes people are just not, not, on, not alone, not even handed in the way that they do that, but can reverse position when the person that they're supposed to be holding to account is more or less favorable to their point of view. Would you think you might be guilty of that? Uh, perhaps at times. I try not to be. I think it's really important to be consistent in principle, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's one of the reasons that, uh, that I work for an organization that, that's dedicated to those conservative principles that you referred to. So, yes, we make uh we we make no apologies for our coming at it from a conservative perspective, but we we feel that transparency and openness is is critical. I think it's one of the things that you see lacking in other news coverage. Uh people who pretend to have an objectivity really don't. Uh they have a, an agenda or an op- opinion uh like everybody does. And uh and particularly with regard to politicians, uh, you, you know, th- this is why it's so critical, I think, for organizations, particularly think tanks, to operate in a nonpartisan type of capacity uh, where you're not uh, going at the whims of the political party, but you're actually uh, believing in a set of principles and policies that guide the work that you do. And uh, that's what many of the think tanks in, in Washington, uh, how, they, how they do operate. And uh, you don't agree with everybody. Uh, there are times when you could have a liberal Democrat and a conservative Republican who come together on, a, on an issue. Uh, and then it, the next day, you could have uh, dis- strong disagreements with both of them. So, I mean, it's just really dependent, I think, on the type of policy issue you're talking about. Sure. And I actually agree with you. And first of all, I completely agree. Nobody is truly objective. And if you claim that you are, that's probably a red flag to begin with. But what I'm concerned about in the discourse that we have in the United States today is that partisanship has been taken to such a height that people who actually are consistent are vilified almost as traitors. And I think on two quite different examples, both of whom are conservatives or Republicans or on the right and have not followed Donald Trump or certainly not supported him. One, uh, Bill Crystal, the, the commentator, and another uh, former Fox News host, whose name has just escaped me, but I'll put it in there. And they both were, for different reasons, refused to support Donald Trump and were, I think, vilified. And I'm just really concerned. And I don't want to hit you with the blame for all of that. But for example, I'm going back to 2008, and you wrote um, an article condemning Congress, saying that they were operating in the dark ages for removing a particular website that was tracking earmark reform. This is a badly analyzed uh, spending of taxpayer dollars. But since Donald Trump has come to office, 
There has been a wholesale cleaning of, for example, climate change references from all sorts of government websites. And there's almost at a, at a Stalinist level of uh, censorship and, and uh, wiping out history. Do you really think that people who complained, as you did, about removing that, uh, that website about earmark reform are consistent when they say nothing about, um, for example, the EPA's website being taken down in order to delete hundreds of pages about climate change? Well, I, I'm a strong advocate of Transparency always have been. I think it's. I think it's critical that uh, the government, in particular, uh, is, is transparent. I, I have some personal experience with this, dating back to the early days when I was reporting for a newspaper in in New York, uh, and uh, and confronted this with uh, a, a local town councils and others who who didn't want to provide the public the information that they they need. So, uh, I, regardless of whether it's uh, during uh, you know the Obama administration, Trump administration, or members of Congress. Uh, yeah, it does concern me, and uh, and it's not necessarily um, just because I didn't personally write about something doesn't mean that I don't share the concern. I, I do think that we need to hold everybody accountable, and uh, and and w- regardless of what the the type of issue is, I I, I don't specifically uh, have the details in terms of uh, the EPA's website or why it was removed. Mm-hmm. Obviously, each administration operates with its own prerogatives. And, well, the, and there's an article, for agenda. example, for example, uh, Rob, there's an article on Time dot uh, com talking about a section of the EPA's website which provided local communities with resources for combating climate change disappeared for months only to resurface heavily redacted including just 175 of its 380 pages and no explanation as uh, as to why that might be done. Right. Well, I, look, I, I can tell you that I've been on the receiving end of freedom of information requests that are, have been heavily redacted, and there's nothing mm-hmm. more frustrating uh, for a journalist to, to, to receive something like that, uh, because it does, it does seem that the first question that comes to mind is, what is the government trying to hide, and why aren't they disclosing this information that I'm asking for? And so, yes, sometimes there are national security interests. Uh, in fact, there's, there's new legislation that Senator Joni Ernst has introduced uh, to bring more transparency, particularly to these areas, but with the understanding that there, there sometimes are r- valid reasons why the government might not uh, want to disclose some information. Uh, sure, 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 uh, sure. So, but something, you know, no, 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 Rob, 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 something that you can look up on the Wayback Machine to see past versions of websites, that's not something that is, you know, if there's a security concern in there, that horse is yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I'm, I'm simply saying that I, I think as as much information as government officials who are, who are elected by the public uh, should should be accountable. And when the public asks for information, uh, my hope is that we would receive it. Uh, look, there are organizations on the right and the left that that are constantly trying to do this. I mean, I can think of. Judicial Watch on the left and crew on the right. I mean, you, you can go through uh, a, a number of organizations that, that really, at their core, are advocating for more access to this information. Um, one of the things that is, I think is critical for us to do our job at, at a place like the Daily Signal is, mm-hmm. is to be able to have access to this information. So when it comes, uh, you know, I appreciate you bringing this to my attention. And, and I think that there are other issues where Conservatives can join forces. Wait, wait, with, wait, with what, wait, what? Scott Pruitt in charge of the EPA, deleting hundreds of references to climate change. You hadn't noticed. I'm, I, I'm familiar with what you're talking about, but I, I've not particularly written on that topic in part because, uh, <laughs> as an editor, there are a number of of, of t- types of issues. But we've I've done plenty other stories 
uh, on government transparency. Okay, okay. And I appreciate that you come from a particular point of view, which you're entirely entitled to, and I'm not, and I'm not critical about that at all. And I know that a lot of people have sort of a mantra that journalists should be uh, neutral and independent and uh, stay virgins for the whole of their lives and dress as priests and live on a mountaintop and so forth. And I'm not really expecting that. And we all have our point of view. And it's perhaps better if people are upfront about that. But taking all of that into account, do you think that your journalism, the output of, uh, the output of the Daily Signal, the output of the Heritage Foundation, you know, would you acknowledge there's been a disproportionate shift since the White House flipped from Obama to Trump? A disproportionate shift in what? In terms of what you will be critical of the administration of. Oh, I mean, I, I think that there are, there are plenty of examples of where uh, we've been critical of of the Trump administration. I mean, one one recent example, and uh, it's quite high profile. You can you can look it up. Is mm-hmm. uh, criticism of what uh, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos wants to do when it comes to um, some school choice efforts on the federal level. Uh, she's personally criticized the Heritage Foundation for our position, and uh, you know, even even the today, the Trump administration will outline. Uh, a new uh, freedom of speech uh, executive order. I think that there are some cautions that we put out. So I, I, I can I can go down the list and provide a number of examples. I, I, is it more likely that uh, the Trump administration is going to be advocating conservative policies that we agree with? I think absolutely. I mean, you can you can go down. Oh, sure, the sure. List no, no, no. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not reg- saying about policies. And a, I would give you a pass on a large chunk of it. But what I'm saying or suggesting to you is that the degree to which excuses are made for things that Obama would have been criticized is so gigantic. And let me give you one example. You wrote an article, the headline on it is White House Issues Correction to Obama's Terrorism Speech. And the article essentially says that there was an error in the text of a speech by uh, Obama in the talking about the visa that the San Bernardino uh, killer or his wife got. And they said that they would review the visa waiver program. And in fact, he shouldn't have included the word waiver. He was intending to review the visa program. And you wrote an entire article about that. That's fine. But there are whole websites listing the thousands of lies that Donald Trump has told since he became president. And putting those two in context, a slight misstatement of mixing up two similar but distinct things seems incredibly petty compared to the avalanche of lies. People, I'm looking at a headline on the Washington Post here, President Trump has made 6,424 false and misleading claims in 649 days. Is that really proportional? Well, uh, I would encourage, first of all, I want to make a distinction here. So I used to be a reporter, yeah. and I am now an editor. I don't write nearly enough personally. So if your beef is with me personally, no, no, I, it's I'm, not. I'm I, 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 just, I'm, don't, I'm, I just yeah. don't have the. I, yeah, my my role has changed, so I'm not writing nearly as much as I used to. 
Secondly, we did a we did an entire fact check uh, after President Trump's recent State of the Union and have done so on other occasions mm-hmm. uh, looking at things that he said. I mean, we label them fact checks for exactly the reason you're you're talking about. So, Rob, uh, Rob, Rob, let me apologize. Let me apologize. Yeah. Let me apologize. I don't want to put this personally at your door, but you're a conservative journalist and there's lots of conservative journalists out there. And maybe it's unfair to make you as the spokesperson for all of them. But just as you observe the news landscape. Wouldn't you agree that the standard that Obama was held to is just on a different planet to that that uh, Donald Trump is being held to? Donald Trump telling an outright lie would not make a very major headline anymore, would it? But he, but it does make headlines every day. I, I, I so just, telling I one lie doesn't for him wouldn't. I mean, I, I, I'm an avid listener of Ben Shapiro's show, and I just yesterday, I mean, Ben Shapiro was quite critical of, of, of President Trump's comments about uh, everything from John McCain uh, to Kellyanne Conway. I mean, I think that there are regular, and I, I, don't, I don't personally like it when he engages on those topics either. And, 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 and I think it's been pointed out in, in the case of McCain, uh, there were some factual problems with what he was saying about McCain. So I, I think that, uh, yes, I, ag- I agree with you. Conservatives are going to be less critical of Donald Trump than they were of President Obama. I mean, I, I agree with you on that point. No, no, no that's, not, that's not my point. I can completely give you a pass. Go right ahead. Be way less critical of Donald Trump. Be way more critical of Obama. I think that's 100% fair game. But there's a difference between opinion and fact. And I think if you go through the conservative press, the degree to which Donald Trump's lies are presented are just it's just not proportionate when you look at some really hysterical reporting that went on about incredibly minor issues about uh, about uh, Obama Sure. I, 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 I appreciate you raising this. I, I think that it's really critical that, that journalists label fact, uh, factual reporting as news and commentary as opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do so on the Daily Signal because we want to make that distinction. And we, look, it's ultimately, I am the biggest advocate of having multiple sources of information that the, that the American people and people across the world can get access to. I think that that's why so many of us are concerned about, uh, censorship that sometimes takes place or, or mm-hmm. algorithmic changes. Um, and we don't want a government solution to that, but we just want an open and access market in which, uh, which all uh, news outlets can flourish. And that's ultimately comes down to an individual consumer about whether or not they trust the information they're receiving. I can tell you we're committed to the truth. Uh, integrity is uh, the highest standard that we have at the Daily Signal. And I can't speak for other con- conservative journalists, but I would hope that they would uh, subscribe to those same principles as well. I'm willing to take you at your word on that. And I think that what you're talking about, the distinction between opinion and news, is very important. I think you would agree, perhaps not on your outlets, but on some that has broken down almost completely. One of the things that you have covered to a significant degree is what is called voter fraud. And leaving things out when they should be covered is one thing. But covering stories at a level that's just beyond what they could possibly be justified is another story, and that can also lead to an imbalanced perception. Do you think that the the coverage of, for example, voter fraud is justified, the volume, do you think that the volume of it is justified? 
I, I, I actually do, be, um, in terms of the work that we're doing on it, because I think that it's undercovered in other cases. Look, there was a major case of voter fraud taking place in North Carolina, which is getting near daily coverage in a lot of publications inside the Beltway. I mm-hmm. mean, Politico being one example almost has a daily running feature on the election in North Carolina's 9th District, in which a Republican uh, is alleged to have committed voter fraud. But, so, but, but to, I, be I fair, mean, I, to be fair, Rob, that what is alleged there, don't think anybody's been convicted yet, what is alleged there is not something that fits the pattern that has been claimed entirely falsely in some cases by Donald Trump, who said that 3 million illegal immigrants voted in California. It is not it is not something that fits the pattern of the claim uh, in many right wing outlets that essentially says that a large number of individual people are being motivated and allowed to vote when they should not. That's that's a narrative that's pressed very uh, hard in the right wing press. Do you think that that coverage is justified? I, I do, and, and I, I would encourage your listeners to go to the Heritage Foundation's comprehensive database of election fraud cases from a, across the uh, United States. Uh, they can get to it at heritage.org slash voter fraud, and you'll mm-hmm. see there that we have a, data, a database of uh, over 1,100 uh, proven instances of voter fraud. I, I don't think that those R- stories roll back, generally roll back, get this level back. of attention. That's something that I will link to in the show notes for this podcast. But my question then is, of uh, because I haven't seen the list, in all of that list, are there any cases where there is an example of an office going to one candidate and not the other as a result of voter fraud? Uh, I, we'd have to. I mean, I, I, we'd have to look at each of the cases. I mean, in, in some cases, yes, the elections were, were were fairly close. I mean, there was an election in in the Commonwealth of Virginia, for instance, which decided control of the uh, state house of delegates. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it came down to uh, you know picking, flipping a coin essentially. Sure, so, sure but, yes, but, but uh, is there any evidence that anything so much as a county dog catcher that the election has been flipped by voter fraud? There, there are. You, you can uh, among the one thousand one hundred and seventy-seven cases, you can you can find examples. Yes. Okay. Well, we will certainly. I'll have a look at that, and I'll put that in the notes uh, for this podcast. I, I suspect that the any cases that exist there are marginal. But in any case, my point on this is that that can sometimes be cover for, and I've had people on the podcast who've essentially called this the new Jim Crow, that efforts that are supposed to be countering voter fraud, A, are not addressing a particularly serious problem and are designed to suppress voting. Where you bang on about, and in article after article, talk about voter fraud and efforts to suppress it, where the evidence that the problem exists is slight at best, and you leave out the fact that those actions are likely to suppress particularly minority voters. That's misleading, isn't it? It's factual. It's true. But it's not the whole story. Well, I, I, you know, this is, this is a, a topic that I would encourage you to speak to my colleague Hans von Spakovsky, who is an expert on this topic at the Heritage Foundation. Um, I, I, as an editor, uh, am giving you my perspective on the issue. Obviously, we disagree, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I appreciate engaging in conversation uh, with you on, on this and other topics because I think it's important uh, to, you know, to, to share uh, different perspectives. I had 
the opportunity to to interview Arthur Brooks uh, mm-hmm. just recently, who has a new book out called Love Your Enemies. And, and I think conversations like this, where we might not see eye to eye on an issue like voter fraud, mm-hmm. um, is it, helpful to, to establish first the facts and then and then discuss where our opinions might differ. Uh, but I don't profess to be an expert on, on voter fraud. Uh, yes, we do cover it uh, on the Daily Signal, in part because we feel the issue is underreported in other news outlets. Well, I should say that actually I'm a pretty hardliner on voting integrity. I think it's incredibly important that that system is maintained and that faith in the system is maintained. But don't you think that it is also relevant to include, for example, facts like Republican-controlled state government in Texas decided that ID would be required to vote? That's perhaps useful, perhaps not. But they decided that a gun license would be a valid ID but a student ID from a recognized university would not be a valid ID. And even a state or federal, an ID badge that you have to work at a state or federal institute is not valid ID. That really does seem to be like trying to skew the pitch. Isn't that the type of thing that should also be included? You know, I'm not going to get into the details uh, of it. Uh, I wasn't aware that you wanted to talk about voter fraud. No, 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 no. And, and I don't want and, to specifically sir, debate sir, that. But what I want to do is, what I want to just say is that the level of balance in the content and the selection seems to be way off. Well, I, I, I understand your perspective. I'm happy to take a closer look at this and we can have a follow-up conversation on it. But I will, t- I will tell you this. I mm-hmm. think that it is important for people who are voting to have an ID. Of, of, uh, and, and I don't think that's unreasonable because you can go to any airport or, or most buildings here in Washington, D.C., and you will not gain admittance without, without that basic form of ID. In fact, you cannot, get in it, you cannot get into some of the very buildings operated by groups that want to remove that requirement uh, from voting. Take the Center for American Progress, for instance. You cannot get into that building without a photo ID. I've tried, um, and, uh, and, and I found that I can't. So I think there's a little bit of hypocrisy here as well uh, from those who, who suggest that it's impossible or very difficult to get access to a certain basic ID. And, and when people have been asked, uh, people who even come from low-income communities who are often the people suggested who, who suffer disproportionately uh, they're told that it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not the case, that they have photo IDs, and uh, that's not the issue. I, I, I think that it, the integrity of our elections are so important that that's a basic step that we, we should and can be taking. Rob Bluey, Vice President for Communications at the Heritage Foundation and founding editor of The Daily Signal, thank you very much for talking to me. Hey, it was great to talk to you. Thank you. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Rob Bluey at Robert Bluey. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. Also, thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find a link on the website. 
also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.changingopinions.com. The Changing Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.